0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the characteristics of a committed disciple we're calling Transformed Through Trust. With this week's message, here's senior pastor, Lance Bourgeois. think with me about the topic of love, I would imagine there's not been a theme for more songs, books, artwork, or anything like that. I mean, what could be a more popular theme than that? I think our songs even ask questions like, what is love? I think people like Taylor Swift try to answer it for us. I'm not sure that she's got a very good answer. But when we think about it, what is love? So if you look it up in the dictionary, it's an abstract term, you're gonna find a definition that seems something along the lines of an abstract idea that is an intense emotion towards someone or something. And maybe that helps us, but I wonder if, if maybe the problem is when something's abstract, it's easier to see it than it is to define it. And so I think that's why Paul, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he doesn't define love for us, but it's almost like he grabs a paintbrush and a canvas, and he starts painting for us what a picture of love might look like. Because for an abstract idea, when we can actually see it, I think we can relate to it better. And so, he picks up his paintbrush, and he starts offering us some brush strokes that looks like this. Love is patient. Okay? So, it's not impatient. Love is kind, doesn't envy or boast. Love doesn't have to do those things. It's not arrogant, it's not rude. See the picture that we're starting to see? Because maybe we have told people that we loved them or they've loved or we've heard that and yet it hasn't looked like these things. Now maybe there was a sincere emotion behind it that they didn't realize what they were doing but I think about how often we read words like this and we think, man, who wouldn't be drawn to somebody who moves toward me with patience and kindness, not envying or boasting, not arrogant or rude? And he goes on, I mean, Paul's not done yet with this portrait that he's painting. It doesn't insist on its own way, it doesn't have to do those things. It's not irritable, it's not resentful. It rejoices with something, but it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. No, it rejoices with truth. When you come to these final strokes, I would imagine Paul's getting to the point where he's thinking, Well, this is pretty good. I'm giving him a good picture. Wait, no, I'm not done yet. Let me grab this brush because there's a few more things. Love bears all things, it can endure anything. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, now we've got quite a picture of what love is. As we come into our study this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We started this new series last week, Transformed Through Trust. And we're talking about the word disciple and how do we grow in our discipleship. We're going to talk about some of these characteristics. If we start thinking about a disciple who can be transformed as they learn to trust God, that what are those characteristics that would help us in our relationship with the Lord, that would help give us firm footing no matter what comes our way? So we started talking about the New Testament in this word disciple. So many of us know that word in terms of a spiritually mature person, and if you come to the text, that's certainly part of it, but when you look at the New Testament, you see that word used in a variety of contexts, far beyond the spiritually mature person. So we talked about it in terms of these four words. John chapter 6, we're told that Jesus said many hard things that day, and as a result, many disciples walked with him no longer. So the biggest group of people that are always in this world are those disciples that are curious about Jesus, because at the base of the word is the idea that you're just trying to learn some things. And if you're here this morning or watching with us on this this morning, we are thrilled that you're here, that you're saying, hey, I want to check in to who this Jesus person is. We're thrilled that you're here with us. Once you move from that curious realm, the same word disciple is used for those who are convinced. When Jesus turned water into wine, the disciples were there and they watched that and were said, and they saw that and they believed in him. That moment that you go from, I'm checking the claims of Christ, to I now believe that he's who he said that he is. See, that's a step, that's progression in this pathway of discipleship that leads to the committed disciple. I want to follow the Lord, I am all in on him to the commission, I'm going to join him in his work. Now think with me, if you and I are sitting here and we're saying, okay, well, that makes all the sense in the world. If I look at who Jesus is and I become convinced that he's who he says that he is, then why in the world would I not follow him? I mean, that makes all the logical sense in the world. He loves me. He's committed to me. He's omnipresent. He's always with me. He's omniscient. He knows everything. As we've talked about before, he never learns anything. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He can bring anything about. If those things are true, and I become convinced that they're true, and then he says, I want you to follow me, then who in their right mind wouldn't follow him? And then... If he says, I want you to go and tell others about me, we become commissioned. It's the most logical progression that we could have, and yet we get hung up on it. We get stuck at various points along the way. And it's not at all linear, is it? It's not like we became curious, convinced, committed, commissioned, and then we just lived out the rest of our lives here. (laughs) If only it were that easy. We're really honest as we can be over here and then something derails us. We could have a battle, a struggle in some kind, a relational struggle, a financial struggle, a mental struggle that we've been talking about this weekend. You can have any of those things and you're like, I'm not, I'm going to move from commission back to committed. And maybe if life hits you with the hardest thing that life can hit you with, you may say, I'm not even sure that I know this God. How can I know him? Is he safe for me? And so, so much of the Christian life is moving back and forth in that reality. So we're going to look at love today that we have said is I think Scripture points out is the first characteristic of a committed disciple. As we go through the Scriptures today, uh, I've got some passages that will be on the screen in an effort to keep people from going back and forth through the Bible. We will be in Matthew, uh, Luke, and John today in looking at the text. So I'm going to invite you when we go to those to turn with me just so you can see with your own eyes what the Scripture is saying. So as we pick up our understanding today, here's where we are, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household, whoever loves father and mother more than me not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These verses probably strike us a little hard, don't they? I mean, Jesus, if we just, at Christmas, we're talking about he's the Prince of Peace, I mean, how great is that? He's the prince of peace. And we come and read these words, and we read words like, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And then he talks about all these relationships are going to be divided. We're going to have fathers and sons. We're going to have mothers and daughters, daughters daughters-in-laws and mother-in-law. Matter of fact, it may set you at odds with those people in your house. And his words are, is that I've come to bring a sword. A sword. I think what he's saying is this, is he's going to divide the reality of allegiances. And we're all going to have to face it, this idea that who, is, who are you following? Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow your family, your allegiances that you already have? Because so often when that sword comes down, you can say, well, why does it have to be that way? Now think with me, maybe it's you, maybe it's not you. Maybe you've heard those words from a, a sibling or a parent or a grandparent that says, I don't know what's gotten into you lately. You've taken this religion thing way too far. You've become fanatical. I mean, you're, you're going too far. I mean, I get it. Trust Jesus, go on Christmas and Easter, sing the songs, that's fine. But you think you're gonna disrupt the way that our family relates to one another? You think that you're going to do those things? You're getting crazy with your finances now. I mean, why, why would you give to a missionary somewhere? Why, what would make you wanna do that? Your money's too hard earned. And you can have this thing where all of a sudden you say, okay, I see it. Either I can follow the Lord or I can follow my family. And the Lord takes this sword and he puts this dividing thing between it that says, No, let's be real clear about what we're doing. And I want you to think with me about how often we say, The Lord says, I've put a dividing line, I've separated the two your allegiance to me, your allegiance to your family. And you and I say, You know what I want to do? I know that you say you brought a sword, but I'm going to do my best to do this. And I want to live in this. And the Lord says, I brought a sword. It's not going to be able to work that way. Michael Horton wrote a book years ago, and this quote's from it. So I'm going to walk us through it because I think it's really going to illuminate something for us. Horton writes, there needs not be an explicit abandonment of any key Christian teaching, just a set of subtle distortions and not-so-subtle distractions, okay? If we're going to be in a position where we grow uh, distant in our relationship with the Lord, it doesn't take a huge abandonment of anything. It could be a distraction. It could be a distortion. I think what we're saying is, what I was just saying, is the idea that if the Lord said, I put a sword to separate the two, and you and I start trying to figure out how we put them back together, is that abandoning what the Lord is saying? He goes on to say, even good things can cause us to look away from Christ and take the gospel for granted. as something we needed for conversion, but which, we can, which now can be safely put in the background. Catch what he's saying. You know what? I came to faith. I moved from curious to convinced. I believe he's who he said he is. So let me just take that and put that back here in this little cubicle in the back of my house, because now that I've got that covered, now I'm going to do what I want to do because now all of a sudden my faith isn't impacting today. I'm still doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And he closes the quote by saying, center sage, however, is someone or something else, not the Lord. Now think with me, when we try to take something that the Lord said he brought a sword to separate, and you and I start spending our life trying to put it back together, because we've got a mixed allegiance when that family member According to this passage, it could be somebody outside of a family member, a friend, a coworker, whatever, that starts saying, you've taken this faith thing too far. Slow down. And the Lord says, I want to be the focus of your life. I want to be the one that your allegiance is to, because when this begins to happen, we need to work through it. I would ask you to consider, here's how we'll know. What happens in that moment when your family has a plan for you that is different than the Lord's plan for you. And they'll speak of it in terms like this. I just can't imagine that God would not want you to be happy. I just can't imagine that God would do this in you. You've taken it too far. And in that moment, what we hear is, I don't know, the Lord's, I feel like the Lord's calling me to do this, but my family is not supportive in this way. How do we move forward in that? These words are strong. He goes a step further. Look with me, if you would, over, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 10. Turn over to Luke chapter 14 because we get this really strong picture again that is pushing us to say, this is beyond kind of what I feel comfortable with because even everything I'm saying today feels a little uncomfortable, like, man, that's excessive. That's a little far. Look with me at the words that we see in Luke chapter 14. Now, great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, those are strong words. I mean, hate, hate. Look back down at the text with me where it goes. Verse 28, he gives us two examples. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. You don't start building until you know you can finish. Your second example, or what king, verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able With 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the others yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So you don't go into war unless you know how you match up. So do some accounting here before you get to that. And he gives us a summary statement in 33 Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. What's going to happen in the moment when I'm leading you here and maybe somebody has a different agenda for you? Count the cost now so that you know how to move forward. So as we talked about it, we talked about this illustration a couple of weeks ago, that this idea that you and I as believers have this new heart where the Lord resides. It's a new heart. God's laws written upon it. It longs to do all that the Lord calls you to do. But we've got members of the body waging war against it. And so we're told that we've got to deny ourselves. Now, here's why. Because if we're going to be used for the Lord's purposes in this world, and you and I all have this world, family, church, work, government, how we engage those around us, is that when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, God has a chance to make impact in this world through you and me, which is when we become the commissioned disciple. Now, all of a sudden, we're being used for his purposes. But let's go back to this idea. How many of you are still hung up on the fact that he said, does not hate? If any one of you does not hate, that's a strong word. What do we do with it? Especially if you know in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, right? Honor mother and father. How is it that we go from Old Testament, honor mother and father, to New Testament, hate mother and father? Is that really what he's saying? Well, no, I think we've got hyperbole. Here's why, because we not only read that in Exodus 20, we see that same idea of honor, mother, and father in Deuteronomy 5, Matthew 15, Mark 7, Mark 10, Luke 18, Ephesians 6. Over and over and over again, we see this idea of honor, mother, and father. So it can't be that we literally hate. I mean, that would be incompatible with God who is love to tell us to hate anybody, which is why I think it's gotta be hyperbole. What do I mean by that? So St. Ignatius was uh, an was early church father, died early 2nd century. And he was a, a bishop, um, he was a bishop in Antioch. And when he is being transported to Rome, he's going to be martyred for his faith. And he's very proud of that. And as he begins to travel, he's writing letters along the way. And he writes this in a letter, okay? Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing a visible or invisible thing, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and the tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all of malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. Okay. He was somebody's son. Now, I've got a mom and a dad, I've got a wife and I've got two kids. And if I'm traveling from Antioch to Rome to be martyred, and they say, oh man, this is terrible. We've got to stop this. We've got to intervene. We've got to call in whatever favors we can call in so that we can stop this because we want him to live. And we can begin to rationalize it, right? Like if he lives, he could keep preaching. And yet somewhere, doesn't it feel like the moment that he becomes convinced that this is gonna be the testimony of his life, that we don't see that sword divide and say, I'm following the Lord or I'm going to follow my allegiance to my family because I'm pretty sure that if it was my wife and kids and my parents and my brother and his family and my friends, they might look at me and say, what do you have against us? Why do you hate us? Why would you even wanna go through this? And Ignatius says, because I'm convinced that this is what the Lord wants to do in my life and through my life for his purposes. And my allegiance is to him, it's not to this world. And it doesn't mean I hate you. I absolutely love you. It means that I love the Lord Jesus Christ with the preeminent love in my life. And now all of a sudden we see that person that he's not curious, no curious disciple makes that decision. No convinced disciple makes that decision. No committed disciple makes that decision. There's one disciple that makes that decision. It's the commissioned disciple that said, my life is about him and what he's called me to. And I'm leaning into that, whatever come my, my way. So all of a sudden, we see him say, okay, that's where I am. And I would ask you, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask us to consider. Lord, sword, what's over here? Maybe it's parents, maybe it's siblings, maybe it's your career, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your relationships. I asked you to consider if your family's calling you to something that the Lord isn't, then how do you lean into that? How do you reconcile that? Lord, what do you have for me here? Ask those questions. We don't need to be afraid of questions. We need to be afraid of the questions that we refuse to ask. And let's start saying, Lord, what is holding on to my heart that would keep me from doing this? What is a competition for you, Lord? Because that's what we're called to. Those are Lord's words, not mine. Is it possible? I think it's possible. Here's why I think it's possible. John in his epistle writes this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Now, I was talking about the fact that love's abstract and so it's easier to see it. Well, manifesting is so we can see it. In this, the love of God was made manifest. He showed us what love was, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And all of a sudden, the moment that happens, we can see it. It's not just saying God's love. No, we've got a visual we have a visual. And let's begin with the idea that love initiates. Love doesn't wait for for something else to happen. No, love goes after. Love goes to rescue. And all of a sudden, we see that God sent his only son in the world. Okay, so we might begin to live. Do we even have a capacity to love God at the level that, that Ignatius did? I think we do. I hope that's not my future, but if so, so be it. But that... Capacity comes from the fact that the Lord lives through us. And we know he's capable of going to the cross. He did it. So all of a sudden, John continues. And he says, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation for our sins. Okay. In this is love, that God loved us, and he sent. When my daughter, who I told you a story about last week with our discussion over a printer that ended in a printer... Um, When she hit adolescence, Ellen and I gave her a ring, and it had a cross on it, uh, and at the crossbar of the cross was a heart. And as we had the conversation with her about that ring, the conversation went like this. You see, that heart is portrayed perfectly in the cross. And there's two parts of love that I think are always necessary. And that crossbar is a perfect cross-section of what happens, because love always is composed of two different things, selflessness and sacrifice. Always, always, always. Selflessness and sacrifice. Look to the cross. Christ is there selflessly because he doesn't need to be there. He's there for us. Sacrifice, it came at the ultimate sacrifice for him. Why would he do it? Well, that word propitiation is a big word, I know. and If you've got a study Bible, maybe it's defined for you. But propitiation simply means this. The amount paid was equal to the amount that was due. The amount paid is equal to the amount that is due. Now, praise God that that happened because what we know in the gospel is our rebellion and our sin drove a wedge between us and God. And everybody tries to figure out how to fill that gap. I can do it by being original, I can be my own truth, I can do it with what I think I need to do. We could do it by trying to go to church every Sunday, by giving money to all the missionaries that you know. And yet, what we're told is, is that the price for that gap is death. That's the price. And so when we read that Jesus went to the cross and was the propitiation, he paid what was due, which was death for everybody. How do we know? Because he was on the cross and he said what? It is finished. Did he run out of steam? No, we're told that he said with a loud voice, with the command of who he was, that he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had paid the price. Even the sins you haven't committed yet? Well, all of your sins were in the future when he was on the cross and he said it all of them. And so when he said it, or even the sins you don't know about yet? Well, yes, even the sins you don't know about yet because you're not omniscient. He is. And when he said it's finished, he's reconciled all of them. He loves you. He's paid the debt in full and praise God that he did because if he didn't, if there was an outstanding balance on our account, guess what has to happen? The wage is still death. And so when he stands there and said it's finished, it's paid for. The amount paid was equal to the amount that was due. Selfless sacrifice. Love is always selfless sacrifice. And all of a sudden, when we read that we're to love God this way and we're to move into this, what we see is a love that is selfless and sacrificial, that now what? Is living inside of us because he lives in us. And you and I have the capacity to love in such outstanding ways. If you're here this morning and you've never understood that gap, What we would want you to know is this, he's paid your debt in full, he loves you. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? That's the question. He loves you, he's committed to you, and if you wanna visit with somebody about it, as Derek said, grab anybody with a lanyard. We'd love to talk with you about it, because with this new capacity, we have the ability to do something great with our lives. Turn over with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Go back, we were in Matthew 10, now let's go to Matthew 22 because we're going to see something here that is really outstanding. I don't know if you feel like you have those got you people in your life that are always trying to catch you or or turn you upside down in what you're thinking and what you say. Jesus was no different. So when we come to this, what we see is this. Matthew 22, we're going to start in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. When he may have gotten past the Sadducees, he's not going to get it past us Pharisees. And a lawyer says, you know what? I think I can trip him up. I think I can trip him up. I think I got just the perfect question that will really put Jesus in knots. He won't even know how to respond. Verse 36, teacher, what, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, there were 613 commandments in the law. Maybe at some level he's trying to say, hey, you know what? That's too many. So if we were, could eliminate 612 of those, which one would we, we really need to keep? I mean, what's the really focus here? Jesus, verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, a totality of yourself, all of it involved in selflessly, sacrificially loving God, all of it. That's what I want, all of that. And I'm sure they're thinking, okay, good, okay, so 612 down. And then he turned around and said, the second, this is the great and first commandment, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, depend all of the law and the prophets, okay? So, remember that sword? I want you to love me with everything you have. And this sword that previously you said, that I said you're going to have to appear as hatred, Look, where we got to divide, I want you to love these people with everything you've got. I am the first and foremost, and I want you to go and love and care for these people. Oh, well, what do we do with the sword? See, it was never about hating any group of people, it's about loving the Lord and allowing that to come through you and me selflessly, sacrificially, that we may love this group of people well. See, now all of a sudden we have a different way of thinking. Okay, that's really significant. I mean, like, which people? I got to tell you, I love this verse. I love, love, love this verse. Revelation chapter 7. Looks in. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. He's looking into, John's looking into the throne room of God in the book of Revelation. And it's this huge room. I mean, it's bigger than this room. I would love for these verses to be true about our church. He looks around. He just says, I see all these people. And listen to what he describes from every nation, from all the tribes and all the peoples and all the languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. If we were to take seriously this thing that we're going to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, and mind, and we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, I wonder if the fact that we would not have issues such as racism, sexism, ageism, uh, whatever other isms you want to put in there because we got busy about the idea that the throne room of God has every nation, tribe, people, and language in it, and that is our eternal future together with the Lord, and maybe our churches could start looking more like that here, because that's happening. And if we start doing the things that we're called to do, I wonder if it doesn't begin to take care of some things for us. Why does it matter? Because these are image bearers. Every person From conception all the way through, every person is an image-bearer, made in the image of God, and God loves them and cares for them. And we're invited to join him in the work of telling the world about their Savior so that we live in such a way that people become curious. And as they become curious, then we walk with them, making disciples as we're going to get them to the point where they can become convinced so that they might see that he loves them and cares for them and can be trusted so that they become committed, and once they're committed that they become commissioned. See, it all comes together when we start asking the right questions. We don't need to be scared of questions. Maybe we haven't been asking the right questions. Because when all of a sudden that's our call, how do we interact with this world? C.S. Lewis offers us these words. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. What's the first thing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And so when we do that, recognize there's a whole lot of great second things. There's no end to the number of great second things. Do I want to be a good husband? Sure. Do I want to be a good dad? Sure. Do I want to be a good son? Sure. A good brother? Sure. A good friend? Sure. I want to be all of those things. But know this. If I don't keep the first thing first, and there's only one legitimate first thing, which is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, if we don't keep that first first and we start trying to take these second things and put them on top, I want to be a godly husband, what we fail to do is, one at first, what we fail to do is understand that our capacity to be any of those things begins in our relationship with the Lord, that he makes that possible. The second thing would be this. The moment we take a second thing and put it first thing, we have a new word for that. You know what that's called? Idolatry. As I can make an idol out of being a husband, a son, a brother, a friend. And I'm wholly incapable of being the the father, the son, the friend, the brother, the child, whatever, at the level that God calls me to if I don't keep first things first. And sometimes our commitment to put the second thing first destroys. And as Lewis points out, when this happens, we lose second things and first things. You want those second things? They're good second things. But you're only going to get it when first things are first and everything else finds its place under the Lord. That's the calling for all of us. And when that happens, all of a sudden, what we see is this. All of a sudden, like John says in 1 John, 1 John, beloved, let us love one another. I went too far. I started bouncing around. I went to the wrong place. <laughs> Open up John chapter 14 if you would. We'll go to John, that John in a minute. Go to John chapter 14. I want you to look at verse 15. Sometimes you and I can say, Scripture's really hard to understand. I mean, we already talked about the fact that there's all these different words for love. Greek philosophy has seven words for love. Okay, so sometimes it's hard to understand. Look at John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love him, will it be observable? Will it manifest itself? And, and John... I mean, Jesus says, yeah, it'll be observable. Here's how I'll know. You'll follow me. Matter of fact, in case we still find confusion in that, drop down in that same chapter to verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, that's pretty simple. So how do we move into this world to love the Lord? The Lord says, here's the first thing, is you will begin to manifest your love for me as you obey me. That as you become convinced, not only that I'm who I say that I am, but that you say, I'm gonna start following what you prescribe for me. Let me tell you this, this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God loves you. He loves you. He's not trying to trick you. He loves you. He says, this is the way I created you to live. And he invites us into that. Turn over a few pages to John chapter 21. Seven Greek words for love in Greek philosophy. Two of them are this. Yeah, you know, one of them speaks about romantic love, one of them speaks about brotherly love, one of them speaks about a love that's like so deep in the core of who you are. But two words appear in this passage I'm about to read. One is the Greek word agape, which talks about an unconditional love that is selfless and sacrificial. The other is the word phileo, if you're familiar with Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So we've got one one word used for love here that talks about unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love, and we have a second word that's used to talk about a love that you have for a brother, a dear friend, okay? John chapter 21, verse 15. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you Agape me. Do you love me unconditionally, selflessly and sacrificially more than these? And he said, and Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I... He didn't answer back with agape. He answered back with phileo. Do you love me unconditionally, Peter? Oh, yes, Lord, I love you like a brother. That's a different word. He said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally, selflessly, and sacrificially, Peter? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. There's our change again. Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you you phileo me? And Peter was grieved because he said a third time, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. You know what's so beautiful about this passage? Do you love me unconditionally? I love you like a brother. Do you love me unconditionally? I love you like a brother. You recognize where the change happens. The change began in Jesus, where he said, okay, Peter, do you love me like a brother? Yes, that's what I do. I love you like a brother. And I think Jesus' words are, then let's just start right here. I don't need you to get there to impress me or to please me. Let's just start right where you are. Which is why I can tell everybody watching today, everybody sitting in this room, if you're curious, we are glad that you're here. And the Lord would come to you and maybe would say, hey, are you curious about me? You don't need to make it up and say you're further than you are. Are you curious about, Lord, I'm curious. And he says, good, then let's just start right there. Are you convinced? Oh, praise the Lord that you're convinced. Let's just start right there and see if I can't show myself to you so that you could begin to trust me so that you could become committed. And if you're committed, then join with me in what I'm doing because it's only in that that we can say, okay, let's put the first things first so that we become committed to who he is and what he's calling us to. Because when that begins to happen, then we will see him move towards us in such powerful ways that we will have the capacity to change the world. But it begins with this idea of being honest with ourselves. I think Peter's trying to say, hey... I don't really love you unconditionally, but I love you really like you're a buddy. And God, I think, wants him to just be honest and clear. Hey, this is where I am, and I'm willing to walk with you here, so let's just start here. And he's doing that with every person watching or in this room today. Because when that begins to happen, we begin to obey him. We, join, we get real honest about where we are with him. Then we have the capacity for First John 4 to happen. Let us love one another. Which, by the way, was What? The second commandment that's like the first, love the Lord and love one another. And then we have the capacity to walk out in this world and make a huge difference for the Lord as he uses us for his purposes. What better thing could we give our lives to? And yet, you know where it begins? It begins with the reality of a love for the Lord that begins to taste and see that he's good. I don't think Ignatius, when he says, don't stop my martyrdom, I'm all in for what the Lord has for me, It doesn't start there. No, that was a lifetime of growing and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and He arrived there. Is that where we're headed? I hope we've got a deepening love for Christ. I hope that we're not where we were a year ago. Hopefully, we're asking questions. We're leaning in to see how the Lord might work. And oh man, does it get really good as you start seeing Him show up with purpose and intentionality in your life? We don't get there overnight. Don't be scared, but start tasting and seeing that he's good, and watch him grow that love in you and me. It's not linear. It's not a rocket taking off. It's it's steps forward, it steps back, more steps back, a couple of steps forward, more steps back, and then hopefully at the end of this where we are is a growing relationship with the Lord, where we have fallen in love with the one who loves you, cares for you, gave his son on the cross for you to redeem you and me so that we might see what love is. Because like that ring, it's always going to be selfless and sacrificial. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast, published on Apple, Google, and Spotify from all of us at Grace Church thanks for listening we'll see you next time